himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think it's good for us to reflect on that uh, today, because today is the Sunday of, um, well, it's the Sunday we observe what's known as All Saints Day. Not every Christian tradition uh, observes All Saints Day, but that is something that Anglicans do. Uh, All Saints Day was, the, the, the actual day was November the 1st, and in the Middle Ages, All Saints was also known as All Hallows, and so All Hallows Eve is our Halloween. And so this is a time of year that uh, when kids are getting uh, candy and their parents are eating Snicker bars and having too much Twix and those sorts of things, we also need to step back and reflect that we are part of a communion of saints. And as Anglicans, we don't pray to the dead, but we remember the dead in, in our service and we give thanks to God for them and for their example. That's why we sing for all the saints when we processed in. And, um, and it reminds us that we're all on a pilgrimage. Our world doesn't like to think about this, but this world is not our final destination. We're on a pilgrimage to God. And so um, celebrating all saints gives us the occasion to remember those who've gone before us and to thank God for their lives. And then to remind ourselves that we're all on our pilgrimage. We're all going to meet God. It's appointed for man to, to die once, the Bible says, and then comes the judgment. And that should turn us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins that's found in Him. Thinking about the fact that we will die and stand before the judgment seat of God. So those are the themes that, uh, that All Saints kind of um, focus us on today. There'll be an occasion when we go to our time of prayer. Um, at the end of our, our prayer time, the prayers of the people, the very last prayer is a time to lift up your thanksgivings to the Lord, and that would be a good time if you would like to mention somebody in prayer that has been instrumental in your life and influencing you for good. Grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, a mentor. That's a good time to do that, to just mention their name. And, and we'll pray for those who have been part of our congregation uh, who, who passed away this year. Um, last week I found out that the father of one of my childhood friends died. He happened to be a Baptist minister in the small town that I grew up in, and, um, and in a neighboring town as well. He served there for some time. And he was there for, I think, about 40 years as a minister, faithful, serving this small community, never had really any recognition outside of his community. He was known as a good and godly man in his community, but he, was, he received no notoriety, never was a conference speaker for a major conference. He never got uh, his face on any sort of magazine. Um, but he was a servant, and, and I went online and looked at what people were saying in the obituaries. You know, you can go out to the funeral homes and you look at the obituaries and look at the comments. And uh, here's what some people said about this man named Douglas McLaughlin. If it wasn't for him, my family would not have had a way to church when I was a young boy. Another person said that she was his neighbor and grew up next to his house as a little girl, and she remembered him as a humble and kind man. Another person called him the patriarch of a family of service and grace. And uh, many of his kids, he had six kids, uh, they're involved in ministry, uh, either as missionaries or involved in local churches. Another person expressed appreciation for his kind demeanor, his love for God, his sparkling eyes, and his stories that he shared. 
Now, I bring this up because this ordinary man, Douglas uh, McLaughlin, who you've never heard of before and you'll never hear of probably again, lived out what Jesus is talking about in this scripture. He may not be great in the eyes of the world, but in the kingdom of God, he was great because he served where God planted him and he served humbly and he served the people around him for the glory of God. All of us, no matter if we're preachers or teachers or uh, you, you don't have to be a preacher or a teacher or a Bible scholar or an expert in anything, all of us can be great in the kingdom of God if we're serving one another humbly. And that's what Jesus teaches us here in this scripture. But there, um, there are some forces working against us in living this kind of life of humble service. And that is, the major force is our pride. Our pride gets in the way of humility and service towards others. And Jesus points uh, out some, some symptoms of pride in the religious leaders of his day. And he's saying to his disciples, I don't want you to be like those guys. They define greatness one way. We're going to define greatness in another way. And so he points out some characteristics of the religious leaders of his day that are prideful and that get in the way of being a humble servant. And so let's look at these characteristics. It's uh, page 10. I just want you to maybe take a look at that passage and we'll go through it together. Page 10 of Matthew 23. Jesus is once again clashing with the Pharisees. Things continue to heat up. And he points out some attitudes of pride in their life that get into the way of them being servants. And the first attitude is, is really one of um, power. I would say these, these guys were power hungry. Instead of serving others, they wanted power over other people. Look, look at what he says. Verse 2, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you. But there, I think he's talking about when they're teaching from Moses, from the law of Moses, do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. So if they're preaching from Moses' law, obey that because that's the word of God. But then, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. What sort of burdens is he talking about? He's talking about the extra rules that they put on top of the Word of God. So when they were teaching, you have the Old Testament Scriptures, the Old Testament Law, and then you have their man-made laws that they added to it, and those were burdens on people. And, and, and so what they created was just sort of a, a, a labyrinth of regulation and legalism in their religion. Uh, for example, uh, the Bible says, the Old Testament is one of the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. You can work for six days, but on the seventh day, you are to rest. You are to do no work. Pretty seer, uh, simple, pretty clear. But then the rabbis ask, okay, what is work? Not to do work. What is work? Well, somebody defined it as work is carrying a heavy load or carrying a burden. Good. What constitutes a heavy load? And then they began to, 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 to talk about that. So in one of the rabbinical writings... Um, there's several definitions of what is a load. One definition, definition is anything that weighs more than two dried figs. If you're less than that, you're good. Or ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Or a pebble big enough to throw at a bird. On and on it goes. So they're adding to the Word of God. Now we're laughing at this, but, but you know, Christian communities and cultures do this too. We add to the Word of God. 
in different ways, adding different regulations and rules about what's holy and what's not. Drinking, certain movies, certain things that we add that go beyond the Scripture. Uh, But what had happened was that because they were able to come up with these rules and regulations and spend their time studying these things and practicing these things, they began to get status and power over those who did not. And they, with their rules and regulations and their legalism, began to define who's holy, namely us, practice these things, and who's unholy, namely those who don't practice what we're teaching. And so there was an authority, there was a power, there was a status that they accrued through this religious legalism. And they had control over people. Imagine how many people must have felt, I wish I had the time to study like the scribes and the Pharisees. I wish I had the discipline. I wish I had the drive like those guys do. And and feeling guilty maybe in, in their very presence. So they had control over people, but they didn't have compassion over people, and that's what Jesus critiques them for as well. They're not even willing to to move a finger, to lift a finger to help people. So this was a tendency that they had, a, a hunger for power over people rather than a desire to serve them. That can happen in religious leadership, certainly. It's a temptation that we face. Anybody who's in leadership over another person, the temptation is to, to gain power from them to exert authority, to dominate rather than to serve. And we have to watch for that in all areas of our life, don't we? Uh, in, in our relationships, husband and wife, we, we, we're called to serve one another out of love. And, and as Christians, in the name of Christ, we're to, to serve one another. But so often what, what can happen is, is there can be a power struggle. But we, we try to control and manipulate the other person, maybe through anger. Maybe through harsh words, maybe through withdrawing, uh, rather than serving and loving. It happens among siblings, power struggles, fighting. It's part of human nature. It happens in in business places, in workplaces, through office politics and gossip and slander and one-upmanship. We see this all the time where people are trying to exert their authority or power or gain power over other people rather than serving them. And I think the key here, and we'll come back to this to the end, to solving this problem of the human heart, it's a persistent problem and one that we have to continually fight against with God's help, is to keep coming back to the cross of Christ. As Christians, we come back to the cross of Christ. We remember that we're sinners. We're all sinners in need of God's salvation, which is revealed there at the cross. We repent daily, remind ourselves of our sinful nature, receive afresh the forgiveness of God. That softens our heart. We recognize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, how he gave and how Jesus was a servant for us. And then that softens our heart to serve others. I think that is the only way to fight against these prideful tendencies in our life. And so Jesus says, disciples, I want you to take note of those guys. Don't be like them. They don't have compassion. They're not serving they're into power. They're into control. They like the status. And that's what he touches on next. The status. The, 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 the desire to impress others with their religiosity, with their, with their piety. Look, look at what he says in verse, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They did some great things, these religious rulers. They did some great deeds. But they did them to be seen by others. 
And you know what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. When we do our good deeds, we're to do them in secret. Not to let the right hand know what the left is doing. We're to do them in secret. We practice our good deeds. We don't tout them. We do them in secret. That, that again, is one of the ways we can counter this pride. It's very hard to pull off, isn't it? Try doing a good deed and then not saying a word about it to anybody, including your spouse. There's this tendency to just want to toot our horn just a little bit. But they do their good deeds to be seen by others, and they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What's he talking about there? Phylacteries were these little leather boxes that um, pious Jews would, would, would have on their bodies, strap them on their arms. This goes back to the, an Old Testament commandment, and they would put the Scriptures in them. It was a good thing to remind them of the, the Word of God. And the fringes as well on the robe of a pious Jew, there would be on the corners of the robe, there would be four, the four corners, they would put fringes there to remind them of the law of God. All this goes back to the Old Testament. God wanted them in their very, their very bodies and in the, in the way they dressed to remember His Word and His Scriptures. But, but they did this to show off, and they made bigger and bigger boxes. If you have a big phylactery, I'm going to have a bigger one to show you how pious I am. And that's what was going on. They loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. There was a seating order in the synagogues. Women and children in the back, men in the front, and then the really pious people at the very front so people could see how they worshiped God. So this is what it was about. It was about show, ostentation, impressing others. And then they, they clamored after these religious titles. Verse 7, greetings in the marketplaces. They loved the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But Jesus says you're not to be called rabbi, which also means master, my master. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You're all brothers. And then he he goes on and says, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now that word there, instructor, is pretty broad. That can mean instructor, it can mean leader, it can mean teacher. It's very broad. It's a title of religious authority or theological authority instruction. So this is a tricky passage for Reverend Dr. Ben Wagner to preach on. There are some problems with religious titles, and Jesus is pointing them out here. Okay, they're, they're, it can slip over into excess. It, is, it can be very dangerous. And, and what he's saying is, one, one thing is that it can imply spiritual superiority over another person. He says, you're all brothers. You're all on equal playing field. We're all sinners in need of grace. So, So don't elevate somebody. Yes, there are gifts in the body of Christ. There are offices that Christ has given the church. There are roles to be fulfilled. There are gifts that He has given and people in the body of Christ to fulfill those roles. Different spiritual gifts, but they're gifts. They're not signs of spiritual superiority over another person. They're to be used with a heart of service. And then the other danger is that these titles can lead to too much reverence, too much deference to the person who has the title. And it can betray a tendency to elevate the religious leader almost to God-like status, as if the leader is my link to God, my mediator to God. And the Lord is saying here, no, you're all privileged to know God as your Father. You all have one instructor, the Messiah, the Christ. 
Every Christian has the privilege of knowing God through the Messiah, his, himself or herself. You, you don't have to go between. You don't have to have a mediator to go between. Um, we are privileged, if we have the Spirit of Christ, to know God. Now, we need instructors, we need teachers, we need preachers and pastors, and God has given them to the church to help us grow in our relationship with God. But we don't want to elevate them too high. Boy, maybe that's dangerous for me to say. I don't think so. Because uh, the tendency is, again, for even the religious leader to, to, to begin to think, well, maybe I'm really something. I have this title. I have this position. And then you can't really operate the way that God has designed ministry to operate because ministry is a service. I read of a newly ordained bishop in England who quickly let it be known in his parish that he did not want to be addressed as my Lord, which is a very English way of an honorific title. But he said that was too excessive, too much deference, too much honor that should be reserved only to the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we have to do away with titles for religious leaders. We have to, you have to use them. You have to say, this person is the pastor. This person is the rector. This person is the leader. But he's talking about a spirit behind these things, you see that elevates people to a place that really only the Lord should have. We have to just watch this tendency, and I'm speaking in, to myself, this tendency really to, to try to impress others with our religiosity and our knowledge, etc. A few years ago, um, I reached out to a mentor who um, was a great pastor, a priest of a church not too, not too far from here, um, because I was having some problems with my own preaching. And I was finding myself getting up and kind of stumbling and mumbling and being way too self-conscious of what I was saying. And as, as we talked, this mentor and I talked, he said, I think the problem is you're trying to impress people too much. And he was exactly right. And that was getting in the way. I was getting in the way. I was being too self-conscious. And the problem is when you try to impress people, you're very um, unimpressive. That's a sure way to be unimpressive when you're self-conscious. And it's something that we have to, I have to continually fight. Edward T. Welch, a Christian psychologist, wrote a book. He, it was entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small, you will work to impress people. You will try to get accolades for pe from people. You will try to show your neighbor that you're successful. You'll start dropping names. You, you'll, you'll just go after the things of this world that say, I've made it. I'm acceptable now. I've got the money. I've got the status. I've got the position. That's idolatry. When people are bigger than God, the problem is we have to make, or the, the solution is we have to make God bigger than people. We have to fear and reverence and honor him more than people. And, and, and young children, of course, uh, young students battle this in the form of peer pressure at school. As adults, we battle this, again, trying to, to get accolades from others and working very hard to gain acceptance. But the problem is Christ calls us not to impress, but to serve others in humility. So how do we cultivate this? I'll just kind of close with this thought and then maybe some applications. Uh, we cultivate this, I think, by... Just, again, reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Keep coming back to the cross each and every day 
in humility and gratitude for what God has done. There he's revealed our sin. There he's revealed his great love for us and his mercy. And the more we meditate on that, the softer our heart is towards others. And it can fight against this pride that we're never going to get rid of until we go to heaven. But we have to battle against it. And I think the simple application is this. That I, and we have a lot of people in this church, as I look out here, and I said this at the first service, I can look out, I know that so many of you have a heart of service, are involved in service, and are serving one another in love. I just want to encourage that that is a great thing. Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. So whatever you're doing to serve one another, keep at it. Because the world may not recognize it as great, but God sees it. And so whether that's in your office place, in your workplace, where you're going the extra mile and you're showing compassion to people in a way that's very Christ-like, that other people may not show this kind of compassion, but because you're a Christian, that's in your heart and you're going the extra mile and showing compassion, that's service. And that's laudable and that is great in the kingdom of God. If you're taking care of your spouse who's, whose health is failing, or a neighbor or a friend, maybe nobody sees that, but God does. So let's encourage, let's be encouraged this morning that our service in humility is a great thing in the kingdom of God. And let's keep our eyes on Christ, our uh, great example who laid down his life in humility for us. Amen.